Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, where you'll find your place in Luke 11, verse 37. We're going to look at Luke 11, 37, all the way through chapter 12, verse 12. While, while you're finding your place, let me say a few words of introduction. From the beginning of time, a war has raged, and every human being is caught in it. In Genesis 3.15, God cursed the devil, that serpent who tempted Adam and Eve, saying, I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I only read the final half, a portion of that comment, because this morning I want to focus on the offspring and the enmity that exists between them as we look at the text before us. But I want you to see that in that statement... God established battle lines. He described them as a feud between two families. Those two families have two heads, the woman and the serpent. There are two families, the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, and there is a feud between them with enmity or hatred set between the woman and the serpent and between their mutual offspring. And God said, that a child, note the singular use of language in the word he, an offspring of the woman would bring an end to that conflict, not through the destruction of the serpent's offspring primarily, but rather through the destruction of the devil himself. In a sense, this is the first prophetic word in Scripture, and it points to the coming of Jesus Christ, the one who fulfills these words as the promised offspring of that woman. But this passage also concerns many generations, since that is another word for the term offspring. As I stated, this is a universal conflict that involves every human being, whether we like it or not. Moreover, the battle lines are not drawn between biological families. This text is not a myth about serpents and women. Rather, it concerns spiritual generations. The devil takes his offspring from the woman's biological children. They are his family in a spiritual sense. So they share in the family traits. They are hateful, deceitful, unbelieving, as Jesus himself said in John 8:44, to those who sought to murder him and lied concerning him. In contrast, the woman also has a spiritual family which is drawn from her biological family. Hers is the family of faith, the people of God who live by faith. And the rest of Genesis confirms this picture. Right away, we see two physical children of Eve, Cain and Abel, and enmity between them. In that narrative, one showed himself to be serpent-like as a murderer and a deceiver. That's why the Apostle John, in 1 John 3.12, could say, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. The other, Abel, for his part, showed himself to be a member of the family of faith through his actions, as the author of Hebrews confirms to us when he says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Hebrews 11.4 Now these two lineages then continue to our day in conflict. 
And we can trace that conflict right through the passage before us in Luke's Gospel as Jesus draws once more the battle lines and speaks of the inevitable outcome that must take place. He very plainly shows us that self-righteous and hypocritical religion will leave us on the losing side of this battle. It will lead to our destruction. But patient, persevering faith in Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit, will lead to our ultimate and eternal salvation. That is the message of the text before us. And so if you found your place in Luke eleven, thirty-seven, 37, would you follow along with me to chapter 12, verse 12. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed in the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why? Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. 
And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Father in heaven, as we hear your word, Make us to receive it in our hearts, Lord. We pray indeed that you would send your Holy Spirit to apply this text to our minds and hearts so that we might go forth from this place, Lord, as hearers of your word and as doers of those people who find the blessedness that comes to those who hear and do the word of you, your your word, Lord. May we be such a people. May we not be the people who are the subject of woes because of our self-righteousness because we find in ourselves all that we hope in. Lord, may we be a people who are contrite, repentant, and seek the forgiveness that is freely offered us through your Son by the power of the Holy Spirit whom you have sent. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when Jesus speaks of this generation in this text, He uses that language in a specialized way. We encountered this language four times last week in Luke 11, 29 through 32. And we encounter it twice more in Luke 11, 50 through 51. We've seen it before in Luke, and we will see it again. Now, in the normal and plain sense, when we hear the words, this generation, we think of a particular group of people set in a particular time in history. If I speak about the greatest generation, everyone here knows that I'm speaking about that generation of Americans who fought in the Second World War or who had entered into adulthood right around the time when that war began. However, I contend that Jesus uses this language, this generation, to refer to the present manifestation of the devil's offspring that we spoke about in Genesis 3.15. And he follows an Old Testament pattern by using this language with specific reference to those from among God's people who reject God's revelation and oppose his purposes and his people. At any time from the fall of Adam and Eve to to the return of our Lord, this generation has been and will be present. Thus Jesus spoke of the crowds that sought a sign in Luke 11, 29 through 32, calling them this generation and saying they're an evil generation. And here he speaks about the scribes and the Pharisees as this generation in Luke 11, 50 through 51. Jesus speaks this way to cause the hearer who knows God's word to consider his own heart and his own response to Christ. Throughout the Bible, God distinguished his people from the unbelieving world and from the unbelieving among his people by using this language. That is, the words, this generation, should have a familiar ring to those who know their Bibles. In Genesis 7, verse 1, the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Now, that's a clear reference to the men living at the time of Noah. However, in Psalm 12, verse 7, David after recounting the many ways in which he was persecuted by his contemporaries, declared his trust in the Lord, saying, You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. If God will guard his people 
from an unbelieving generation, this generation for all time, David must be speaking about something, some group that is more enduring than a single group of a people in the period of some 80 years. We see a similar pattern in the book of Numbers, in the book of Deuteronomy. In Numbers 32, verse 13, we read, And the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel, and He made them wander in the wilderness forty years, until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. It's an explicit reference to what we call the wilderness generation. Then in Deuteronomy 1.35, speaking to the next generation of Israelites, God referred to their fathers as an evil generation. Broadening the reference, however, Moses taught Israel a song in Deuteronomy 32 that they were to sing throughout all their generations, which included these words, which were to be a testimony against any generation in God's people that rejected God's word and went after idols. These words in Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children, no longer his children, because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. These words were meant to serve as a testimony against any generation of Israelites who turned aside from following God. Thus that language, a crooked and twisted generation, which recalled earlier references to generations of Israelites who rejected God, particularly that wilderness generation, could be applied at many periods of time. It spoke of all those from among God's people who would turn aside from following Him to go after false gods. For this reason, we see similar language in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, verse 40, after Peter preached at Pentecost, we see that he's saying to the people, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Likewise, in Philippians 2, 14 and 15, Paul recalled the grumbling of the wilderness generation and wrote, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So we see this way of speaking is common in the New Testament and it's also common in Luke's Gospel. When John the Baptist confronted the crowds who came to be baptized, he called them the children of snakes, saying, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And then he challenged them to demonstrate true repentance through their actions, the mark of a true child of God. In Luke 7, 31 through 35, Jesus used a parable to compare this generation to school children who play unwinnable games where the rules are always changing. And he contrasted them with the children of wisdom because they refused to believe in John's message, his preaching of repentance, and they refused to believe in Christ. But the children of wisdom came both to John and to Jesus. In Luke 9.41, Jesus confronted a crowd with language that echoed Deuteronomy 32.5 when he addressed them as a faithless and twisted generation. So we see that Jesus, the prophets, and the apostles speak similarly when they speak of two generations, the generation of those who are righteous by faith and the generation of those who reject God, His people, and His purposes. The present manifestation of that unbelieving generation is called this generation at any time. And those who have passed off the scene are their fathers, 
Ultimately, they are children of the devil, so the family tree is presented in a simple three-step tree. Satan, their fathers, and this generation. But the people of God, those who by faith receive the right to be called children of God, as John tells us in John 1.12, they remain in God's protection forever as His children and as lights who shine in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now this matters for many reasons, not least because it will help us to better understand Jesus' words and His teaching in this text and the rest of the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 17, 25, Jesus will say that He must first suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Nevertheless, in Luke 21, 32, when we hear Him speak about the things that will take place before He comes again, He says, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. If we understand this generation as a reference to every living person in that span of time in the first century, then those words will confuse us. Either we will be led to conclude that Jesus and the early Christians wrongly thought His return would happen within a lifetime. That's what secular biblical scholars often claim. Alternatively, we will be led to conclude that all of the events that Jesus said were necessary to take place before His return actually happened in the first century. And plainly, when we read Luke 21 or Matthew 24 and 25, we see that all of these things have not yet taken place. But if we can see that this generation includes all unbelievers standing in opposition to God, His people, and His purposes from all of history, though it refers to the present manifestation of that generation in the context in which we hear it, then we will understand what Jesus is saying in Luke 21, 32. And in this text, we will understand its applicability to us. Simply, the conflict that God spoke of in Genesis 3:15 will endure until the appointed time when our Lord returns from heaven and crushes all His enemies under His feet. As God's people, we are called to live as His children, not apart from the world, but as lights in the midst of a world that is a crooked, and twisted generation. But how? How can we live this way? The text before us shows us how. By rejecting self-righteousness, by rejecting hypocrisy, which is false religion, and with courage by trusting Jesus Christ through thick and thin by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. This passage is long. But it can briefly be summarized under four headings that will instruct us in this way of life, in this way of faith. We will, be, we will see a picture of false religion in the scribes and the Pharisees. And we will see and hear from Jesus a warning against that false religion. And then we will receive encouragement as true believers. And we will be given a picture of true faith. A picture of true faith. So let's look first then at this picture of false religion. We see this portrait of false religion in two sets of three woes that Jesus pronounces upon the Pharisees and the scribes. First, Jesus pronounces three woes against the Pharisees because their religion is all show, while inwardly they have no true faith. Rather, they are filled with greed and pride, he says. Outwardly, they show great signs of piety. Therefore, they are like cups that are washed only on the outside, but on the inside they remain dirty. What prompted Jesus to make this strong statement? We see that the Pharisee who invited Jesus to dinner 
marveled that he did not go through a series of ceremonial washings that were part of Pharisaic tradition. Perceiving his self-righteousness, Jesus challenged him to see beyond those traditions. We remember earlier last week in Luke 11 that people marveled when Jesus performed mighty deeds. This man marvels because Jesus doesn't do a special kind of washing of his hands. Jesus said then, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Now Jesus is not saying that external acts of religion do not matter. He is saying that they are meaningless if they do not flow from a changed heart. The Pharisees had hearts that were full of greed and pride. They loved money and they loved themselves. As Jesus would say, they loved greetings in the marketplace. They loved to be honored by others. But they, in fact, were fools because they failed to realize that God does not just see the outside of the cup, but He searches hearts. He seeks godliness within a man. And in the Pharisees, as Jesus stands searching their hearts, Jesus finds none. In fact, Jesus states categorically for them that if a man has a heart that is inwardly right with God, he will give those things which truly honor God, so then all things will be clean to him. In other words, you cannot be cleansed by external rituals. You cannot be cleansed by these washings. Cleansing does not start from without. It starts from a changed heart. It starts from within. If a man's heart is black with sin, no amount of ritual cleansing can clean it. But if a man repents before God and is purified by the cleansing blood of Christ, he is clean. Then he will respond to God's grace with acts of love and justice. Fruit in keeping with repentance, as John the Baptist would say. If this is a person's way of life, he has no need for cleansing traditions and rituals. And if this is not his manner of life, no traditions and rituals can ever cleanse him. And so, the Pharisees are subjects of woes. Jesus pronounces a first series of three woes. And it will be helpful to remember that words of woes, words of woe are the natural opposite of beatitudes. In this context, we can recall Jesus saying in Luke eleven twenty eight, 28, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That's a beatitude. It states, this is the blessed way of life. But here we see three, three woes, in fact, two sets of three woes the anti-beatitude, if you will. It's like watching a reckless driver as he's about to crash his car and saying, oh my, with a strong tone of pity. It's an affirmation that a particular way of life is pitiable. In his woes against the Pharisees, Jesus gave us a picture of the pitiable state of self-righteous, hypocritical religion. It deserves only woe. You see, the Pharisees tithed on mint herbs and small plants. My wife plants a garden out back and she has a little bed where she plants basil and some other herbs. Now imagine if we were to grow that basil every year and then we were to harvest it and calculate out its value and then pay a tenth to the church on that value. What would it amount to? A dollar? Maybe? Probably not. Not likely. But if I made a show of it, some might think, oh, there's a righteous guy. He tithes even on his basil. He must give a lot. He must be 
very, very assiduous in what he does to tithe. But if you then discover that I tithed on time and oregano, but I did not give out of my paycheck, the picture would look quite different. You say, well, he gives little things, but he doesn't give anything actually substantial. But Jesus takes it even beyond a paycheck. He says to the Pharisees that they are so careful in their tithing. They tithe on mint and dill and other kinds of little herbs, but they don't give those things which God calls the weightier matters of the law. They don't give those things which God most desires. He does not need your money. But what does He want to come from within? Love and justice. Those weightier matters of the law that are based upon those two great commandments that we should love the Lord our God with everything that is in our being and that we should love our neighbor as ourselves, which we can summarize in those two words, love and justice. That's what God wants from His people. And it flows from a changed heart. The Pharisees gave God from their garden herbs because they thought the law demanded it. They wanted to show others as well how carefully they kept God's law, but they did not fulfill the two great commandments in their lives. There's no love in their hearts. There's no justice in their deeds. Instead, they are shameless self-promoters who seek the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. They want people to look up to them as religious leaders and positive examples. But the reality is far different. Jesus says they're like unmarked graves. In other words, like whitewashed tombs. They're, he's saying that just as a grave makes a person unclean because of the association with death in that ritual context, these Pharisees who cleanse the outside of the cup and think that they're clean are actually like that unmarked grave. They are a source of uncleanness, of, of real and true uncleanness from the heart. People don't know it, though, because on the outside, they're like whitewashed tombs. They're like unmarked graves. They're clothing themselves in false religion. So no one who comes under their influence would know that they offer them nothing that can truly cleanse, nothing that can truly save. We need to hear the same message in our day. Ask the average churchgoer in this country, what does God want from them? You are likely to hear them respond that God wants us to go to church, follow the Ten Commandments, and tithe every week. Then ask them, what do you think God wants as your tithe? They are likely to answer, money, what else? The truth is that God does not care about your money. That is not what He most desires, that is. He wants you to believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, with a true and real faith, and He wants you to love one another. True generosity, then, will flow from these two convictions, these two realities in your heart, as an expression of your faith and love. But no amount of giving to the church or any charity can cover for a failure to love God and your neighbor in this way. That is why Jesus speaks this way in this passage. His words to the Pharisees are severe, but they are necessary and warranted. They need to be shocked out of their self-righteousness if they hope to find mercy through repentance and faith. And so do we. So do we. Now hearing this, a scribe stood up and said, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. This leads to a second series of woe, this time against the scribes, the lawyers, these teachers of the law of Moses. These scribes were no different than the Pharisees. But here Jesus turns his attention away from that internal issue, the internal matters of the heart, to the external effects of that teaching as the scribes apply it to other people in their context. 
In the hands of the scribes, hypocritical and self-righteous religion did a great deal of damage. They loaded people up with heavy burdens, but they did nothing to lift those burdens themselves. Oh, this is an ironic picture when compared with the first woe against the Pharisees. The Pharisees tithed on little things that cost them next to nothing. But the scribes loaded people with burdens that no one could carry, burdens that affected the scribes themselves in no way. They also possessed what Jesus called the key of knowledge, but they refused to use it for themselves or to benefit others. He's saying that they know God's Word. They've been instructed in it, and they are the ones who are to teach God's people from God's Word, but they've not actually responded to God's Word in faith. I recall a story about a Lutheran minister who gave his testimony of coming to faith that happened while he was himself preaching a sermon. He realized the things that he was saying were true. And can you imagine for so many years not being a genuine, genuine believer as he preached God's Word? That's what the scribes are like. They had not responded in faith to God's Word, and they therefore were not teaching it well to others so that they might believe and be saved. Rather, they had turned God's law into a burden that no one could lift by adding all sorts of additional regulations to it. And they rejected the only one who was able to lift the burden of God's law, Jesus Christ, who does it for us. How often do we see this kind of thing in our own lives? How often do we engage in it? Imagine if Congress and the President enacted laws that required everyone in this country to only use public transportation, while they themselves had a loophole that allowed them to be chauffeured around by private drivers. This would be a great burden, especially for people like us away from the cities. Essentially, Jesus alleges that the lawyers interpret the law in that same way. That makes it an onerous obligation for everyday Jews, but for them, their interpretations leave no burden upon themselves. And it gets worse from there. Jesus pronounces a woe upon the scribes, not only because of their burdensome religion, but because they build the tombs of the prophets. In those days, it was a practice to build the tombs of men like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Micah. In their eyes, it was like building a monument to a past president in our eyes. However, Jesus looked at it as an ironic act. Recall that these men are part of this generation, Therefore, they are aligned not with these righteous prophets, but with their fathers who persecuted those prophets. So Jesus says that their building projects are really an affirmation and a consent to their father's deeds, those fathers who persecuted these men. The logic works because they reject the words of the prophets, particularly as they concern Christ, while they make a show of honoring these same prophets. It would be like someone today wearing a T-shirt emblazoned with a picture of Jesus with a crown of thorns on his head, who never reads God's word, who doesn't believe in Christ, who does not confess his sin, and who does not seek to imitate God's Son. One could say, you consent to his crucifixion because you wear that shirt, yet you refuse to trust him for what he has done. That is hypocritical religion. Only show, no substance, and it has a disastrous impact upon those who come under, the teachers who hold to it. So what follows, though it's one of the most enigmatic texts in the Gospels, it's an important charge that Jesus makes. He says in verse 49, Therefore also 
the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Now, there's a lot in here that would be very apparent to the original hearers who knew the Old Testament well. Let's start with the, the first issue. Many interpreters take this reference to the wisdom of God as a personification of God's purposes or as a veiled reference to Jesus as God's wisdom. It's true that Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, first letter to the Corinthians, referred to Christ as the wisdom of God, saying in 1 Corinthians 1.30, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's not wrong to speak of Jesus in this way. I'm just going to argue that Jesus doesn't speak of himself in this way right now. I take this as a reference to the Holy Spirit for several reasons. I won't go into every detail, but I'll list them. First, both the Old Testament and the New Testament consistently associate the Holy Spirit with the giving of wisdom to God's people, particularly in that act of communicating wisdom to man. And if you'd like, afterward, I'll give you some of the references. Second, in Luke, Jesus promises to give his disciples wisdom in the day of persecution, Luke 21, 12 through 15. And in a text that's almost the same, very similar, same language, in our text in Luke 12, 11, and 12, he promises them the Holy Spirit in that day, where the giving of wisdom and the giving of the Holy Spirit are seemingly interchangeable in Luke's language. In other words, the word wisdom in the latter text refers to the, in some sense to the Holy Spirit. Another reason then, and this is the final reason, excuse me, the third reason, is that in Jesus' day, both in Judaism and in the, in, in, among the early Christians, people understood wisdom as a, as a way of referring to the Holy Spirit. Not everybody, but, but many. Just as we can speak of Jesus as the Word of God, the Logos of God, because of John 1, people would speak of the Spirit as the wisdom of God in some cases. But the final and the most decisive proof in my mind is that in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, preaches a sermon in which he challenges those who are trying to kill him for rejecting Jesus and his apostles. He links them with their fathers who persecuted God's prophet. Then, in the conclusion of that sermon, in Acts 7, 51 through 53, he says this, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Thus, in a text recorded by Luke, which is very much like this text, Stephen makes it clear that his persecutors are resisting the Holy Spirit as they resist God's prophets and apostles and even Christ, the one on whom the Spirit rested, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and might, spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, as Isaiah says. And so I conclude that Jesus is speaking of the Holy Spirit as the one who is the wisdom of God, who sends these prophets and apostles. He assigns these scribes then as the part of this generation. 
And he says that they will be held responsible for the persecution of God's prophets and apostles, for they consented to the work of their fathers, and they filled it up in their own day. Verse 51 is a comprehensive way of drawing attention to every martyred prophet, Abel being the first martyr in all of Scripture back in Genesis 4, verse 8. And then in the Hebrew ordering of the books, in 2 Chronicles 24, 20, and 21, 2 Chronicles being the last book in the Hebrew order, Zechariah is the last martyr in the Old Testament. All of these sins will be required of this generation. Indeed, it will be required of all who do not, through repentance and faith, escape from this generation. So we can see then in this portrait, in this picture, a very clear picture of false religion, and it leads to woe. And we can move rather quickly then through the final verses, the the first 12 verses of chapter 12. See, the scribes and the Pharisees did not take kindly to what Jesus said. They fulfilled his words, in fact, as they sought to trap him and to destroy him. Nevertheless, as crowds gathered to him in the thousands, and as as they did, he warned his disciples about the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees. He warned them to beware of that false religion which he called leaven. You see, as a little leaven put in a, in a lump of dough quickly leavens the whole lump. So hypocrisy in the midst of God's people quickly spreads like gangrene, especially as it comes from the teachers of God's people. God's people must beware of hypocrisy in themselves and in their midst. They must root it out like bad leaven. Why? As Jesus tells us, because there's a day of reversals coming, and one of those reversals will involve revelation. God will reveal what is hidden in our hearts. He will uncover the secrets of our lives. The Pharisees, remember, were like whitewashed tombs and cups that were clean only on the outside. God would take that cup. He will take that cup someday and expose the inside to everyone. He will take that tomb and remove its whitewashing. What what is hidden now will not remain hidden always. So we must beware of hypocrisy. How can we do that? We can do it by hearing and heeding these familiar words from 1 John 1, verse 5 through 7. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say... We have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. John will go on to show us that this looks like confession of sin in the Christian's life. God calls us to be those who confess our sins before him. And he calls us to grow in Christ's likeness. But none of this will happen if we pretend to walk in the light through self-righteousness while inwardly we indulge greed and deceit and anger and every sort of evil. This does not mean that we live a life of wanton sin and content ourselves to simply confess it while running back to the sin. Nor does it mean that we must live a life of perfect holiness without any sin at all. Rather, we are to grow in holiness by degrees through the Spirit working in us as we receive God's Word in our hearts. But we must beware, lest that growth should become mere external show. Then we will be as those who walk in darkness while claiming to be in the light. As John says, 
Such a one has no fellowship with God who is light. Second, as Jesus warns us against false religion, he encourages us as true believers. He encouraged his disciples not to be afraid of those who practice false religion. We've seen already the enmity, the warfare, the conflict that exists between them. And here he says not to be afraid of them. Some would die at the hands of unbelieving men. All would be persecuted in one way or another. And this holds true for all God's people throughout this life. For this generation will not pass away until our Lord returns. Jesus does not want any of his followers to fear men, to fear our opponents. Why? Because they can do nothing to our souls. Once your body is destroyed, that's it. There's nothing more they can do to you. But your soul is preserved and it's held fast in the hands of our Lord. God alone is able to destroy a person forever in hell, Jesus says. So he alone is to be feared. But this fear is not exactly the same. It's not the kind of awe-stricken terror that we might think it is. Rather, it's the kind of fear you can see in humble, loved trust that a child has for a good father. For the same God who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell is the God who provides for the needs of all his people. If five sparrows are worth two pennies, but God values them enough to remember them all, for God loves all his creatures and forgets not one, then how much more will he value the gem of his creation, mankind who he has made in his image and given of his own spirit? In other words, Jesus assures us that he himself will provide for us even in the face of great difficulty and persecution. He has numbered our hairs, and he values us more than birds. Even here, he reminds us of his great provision, that great provision when he multiplied five loaves and two fish. For as Matthew has it, Jesus says, are not two sparrows worth a penny? But here Luke has it as five sparrows worth two pennies, reminding us of that other time when the Lord took five and two in his hand and broke them and fed a multitude. Jesus is our Lord, the Son of God, who is able to provide for us all that we need. And He alone has authority over our souls. So fear Him only and trust Him wholly. And finally, Jesus gives us a picture of that kind of true belief so that we might not follow in the wake of hypocritical religious leaders of His day or ours. True belief looks like courageous Spirit-empowered faith in Christ in the midst of all life's difficulties. And we are sure that this faith will be rewarded on the day when our Lord comes again. As Jesus says in Luke 12, 8 and following, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit are those who resist God's clear revelation in Christ. They're like the scribes who build the tombs of the prophets and seek to kill Jesus in spite of all that they saw him do. Jesus states categorically that they will not be forgiven. Any sin, no matter how, but, excuse me, that they will not be forgiven that sin. But he also states categorically that we will be forgiven any sin, no matter how great, even if we slandered the Lord himself 
we will be forgiven that sin. The one who sees and understands the Spirit's work and rejects Him anyway will not be forgiven. Some sometimes fear, some Christians sometimes fear that they might accidentally commit that sin. But this is not a sin that you can accidentally commit. It involves the willful rejection of the Spirit's clear and decisive revelation in the person of Christ. We know it in Scripture by the allegation we saw last week when men said that Jesus cast out demons by the power of Satan and therefore called the Holy Spirit Beelzebul, the devil. That was the unforgivable sin. If we do not acknowledge Him, when the Spirit has clearly and unmistakably revealed Him to us, then, then we, are, we are in danger of that. But we can't accidentally commit this sin. It doesn't mean that we should be flippant about believing in Christ. True faith ultimately recognizes Jesus as Lord, the Son of God, who died in our place for our sins, who rose from the grave, and who will return as judge of the living and the dead. If we do not acknowledge Him in this way, ultimately in this life, He will not acknowledge us when He returns. But many begin as opponents of this message and then repent and believe. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee, the chief example of this kind of repentance of faith in the early Christian community. Therefore, even this great sin, a sin against the Son of Man like this, will be forgiven. So we know that no matter how great our sin is, we will be cleansed. We can be cleansed by the blood of Christ. We will be forgiven. This is a picture of true faith. It is seen when men and women who live in this life with steadfast faith in Christ, trusting Him that He is able to forgive us, who is able to save us, He is able to deliver us through thick and thin. That is true faith in Christ. And when we face the threats and the ridicule and the hostility of the world, we continue to acknowledge Christ before others, proclaiming that He is our Lord and Savior before all others so that they may believe too. That is true faith in Christ. That is what will save us on that day. That is true religion. It's courageous. It's powerful. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit and a mark that we are God's children. And it is the kind of faith that we will need in the world in which we live. For we face increasing hostility in our world from a culture that is just as self-righteous as the scribes and the Pharisees. It's true that the Pharisees would never have recognized our culture's standard of righteousness. But that does not change the fact that they are all part of the same generation. That's the thing about this generation language. It was meant to cause those among God's people who opposed His purposes, to see who they really were aligned with, to see what side they really were on, to see that they were on the side of pagans and idolaters and the devil himself, thus encouraging them to repent and save themselves from that crooked generation. You see, our culture is self-righteous. Its standard of righteousness has simply changed. That's also a byproduct of our self-righteousness because mankind is constantly changing. So when man is the true north of his own moral compass, that compass spins like a clock. For those who follow the unchanging standard of our unchanging God, however, we will look like evil monsters and horrible people in the eyes of the world. And they will judge us in their hearts or their minds or even their courts. And then what are we to do? We are to hold fast our faith, 
Do not fear them. Remain steadfast in confessing that Jesus is Lord. Stand firm in the grace and forgiveness that He offers. Persist in the pursuit of faith and love and reject self-righteous hypocritical religion. If they drag you before judges and councils, just as they dragged the apostles before synagogues and rulers, and if they even threaten your life, do not fear. Hold fast to your faith and trust the Spirit of God who will teach you in that day what you are to say and who empowers your faith even now. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He will surely come again. So let us hold fast in confessing Him He will acknowledge us when He comes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, increase our faith. Lord, we pray that You would wash us inside so that we might be truly clean. We pray that You would cleanse us day by day through confession and repentance of sin and through the faith that truly saves. May we be examples to the watching world of true religion as lights who shine in a dark world, as people who are full of faith and hope and love. Lord, make us to stand firm as only you are able. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.